Good morning, guys. We are opening up the book of James. So if you want to turn there, it's kind of toward the end of your Bible. And uh, James was written by Jesus' little brother. And so one of the great evidences that Jesus really did rise from death is that his little brother ended up worshiping him as God. And so the book of James starts off this way. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. And so James claims that he worships Jesus as God in such a way that he is now a servant of Jesus Christ. He's the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, and it says that he's writing to the people in the dispersion. And so the people that he's writing to were scattered because of persecution. In other words, they were a suffering people. And so it's not really surprising that the first thing that James wants to talk to us about in the book of James is how to deal with suffering and trials and hardships in our lives. And so here's what we're going to look at today. We're going to see that true religion is proved genuine through suffering. And so that phrase, true religion, is a phrase used by James later on in the book to describe what it really means to be a servant of Jesus, what it really means to be a follower of Christ. And so what we're going to be doing throughout this book is we're going to be examining our lives to see if we are truly in the faith, if we have just believed in Jesus and not let that transform our lives or if we are being transformed into the image of Jesus and becoming like him, which is what true Christianity is all about. So we're going to see five ways that true religion is proved genuine, genuine through suffering. The first one is that suffering matures us. So we're looking at verses 2 through 4 to see this point. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So here's what James is saying, that we have a choice when we meet trials. So you think of when you meet a person, you're going to shake that person's hand. You're going to come face to face with that person. It says there's these instances in our lives when we can't avoid the trial. It's a face-to-face -face confrontation. And we have a choice at that point. We can either put the trial in the misery column, which is what we normally do, or we can put the trial in the joy column. Now, here's why we would put the trial in the misery column. Because the trial in our mind and heart is preventing us from getting some dream that we had. We see the trial as an obstacle to our joy. And when we put a trial in the misery column and we see it as an obstacle to our joy, it ruins our relationship with God. But James says there's a different way to view trials. Instead of putting them in the misery column, we can put trials in the joy column. And the way that we do that is we see that our trials have a purpose in our life. 
And he describes that purpose here. So he says, okay, first put the trial in the joy column. And then he shows us the way in which to do that. And he says, first of all, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, in other translations, the word steadfastness is translated endurance or perseverance. So here's one of the ways that we put trials, anything that we're going through of various kinds in the joy column. We see that those trials, if we face them rightly, are helping us be the type of people that maintain our character no matter what we face. We see, if we continue to meet these trials, we put them in the joy column, that what will begin to happen is our character will be transformed. And just like working out produces growth in your muscles, obviously I know something about that, um, <laughs> trials produce, produce growth in your character. And although it is painful to meet trials in that way, it is exciting to see growth in your life. And we often want to try to grow apart from the trials, and James is inviting us to grow in and through the trials. And then what we see is that as we face those things with steadfastness, we grow that we move toward maturity in Christ. That's what he says when he says that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. It means that you may be mature and complete. So all of us are at different stages in our growth and our relationship with Christ, but all of our goal should be to be conformed to the image of Christ. And James is saying the way to maturity is not around trials. The way to maturity is in and through trials. It's as we keep this perspective in mind this purpose in mind that we can have joy in our trials. A few years back, I read a book by a guy named Viktor Frankl. What's really interesting about this book, it's called Man's Search for Meaning, is that Viktor Frankl was a Jewish psychoanalyst who survived the Holocaust. And so when he was in a concentration camp, the way that he got through that trial was he turned it into like a psychological experiment. And this is one of the observations he made about going through that horrible trial, a horrible type of atrocity that likely none of us will ever face. He said, life is never made unbearable by circumstances, but only by lack of meaning and purpose. See, Viktor Frankl is saying the same thing that James is saying. What makes your trials unbearable is that you've lost your focus of their purpose. And so let me ask you a question. Are you running from your trials right now, or are you coming face-to-face -face with your trials and saying, God, use this in my life? Is the main purpose of your life your own comfort, your own security, your own happiness? Or is the main purpose of your life to become like Jesus? Because the secret to having joy in trials is that your purpose in life is to become like Jesus. Okay, if this is going to be true of us, 
we're going to need some help and we're going to need some humility, which is why James next says that the second purpose that suffering has in our life is to humble us. Okay, so we're at this place where we're like, okay, I want to face my trials with joy. How do I do that? He continues with the playbook, verses 5 through 8. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So here's what James says. You want to face your trials with joy. You're going to immediately realize that in all of the different life circumstances that you face and all of the different suffering that you endure, that you lack wisdom. That is the skill necessary to face those particular trials in a way that honors Jesus. But he doesn't say, if you lack wisdom, just get your stuff together and prove to God how capable you are. He says, if you lack wisdom, come to God. Don't run away from God. Come to God. In other words, God welcomes those who feel inadequate to face their lives in a way that honors him. He doesn't push us away in our inadequacy. He asks us to engage in relationship with him on the basis of our inadequacy. And then this is what he says. He says, the reason that we can do this is because of the very character of God. And here's how he describes God. I love this. He says that God gives generously and without reproach. Okay, we all have something that comes to mind when he says gives generously. So if somebody's generous, right, they give to you in a way that you didn't expect. Maybe you're expecting an amazing Christmas present from somebody, but if they give you something way better or way more expensive than you expected, you would call that person generous. And so God is like that. When we ask him for wisdom, he gives way more than we could ever ask or imagine, that we could ever expect. So that's the first thing. I don't know about you, but nothing really came to mind when I thought of without reproach. It, it felt like Victorian to me or something like that. So I had to look up the definition of reproach. And, and reproach is disappointment, okay? That's the word we would use in, in today's vernacular. So it's not just that God unexpectedly is generous to us. It's also, and this is amazing, when you come to God to ask for help, he's not disappointed in you. So, sometimes we can feel just this general like, oh man, I haven't prayed in a long time. And I know I haven't been facing my trials with joy. I'm kind of a complainer and I'm nothing like Jesus. And we project our own disappointment with ourselves onto God. And so some of us just need to hear this morning, like, God isn't disappointed in you. He loves you. 
You know, Jesus gets at this idea over and over again in his ministry. And sometimes Jesus tells funny stories to get at this idea. And one of these stories that I love is he, he tells us to picture that there's a guy, kind of an old guy in his house sleeping. And somebody who's kind of a friend, but not really a friend, goes and knocks at this old guy's door at midnight. And we know old guys are sleeping at midnight. And so you kind of picture this guy coming and maybe he's got like the old man PJs on, maybe even the little hat. And, he, and he's like kind of mad, right? And he opens the door and, and the guy at the door is like, hey, can I have some food? I'm hungry. Can I have something to drink? And Jesus says this about this story. This is in Luke 11, verse 8. It says, because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So even though the old guy wouldn't like you being at his house at midnight, but simply because you had the audacity to knock on the door and ask him for some food at midnight, he's going to give it to you. And here's what Jesus is saying. How much more will the God who is overflowing with generosity and who is not disappointed with you give you what you need? So here's what's offensive to God. It's the opposite of what we think is offensive to God. We think what's offensive to God is people as messed up with him as we are asking him for things all the time. Here's what God is offended by when we don't ask. He's like, just ask. Just come and ask. And he's also offended when we don't believe that he's going to give us good things. He says, when we're like that, we're unstable. We're like the waves. We don't know which way we're going. We don't know what's coming next. He says, here's how you center your life in the midst of trials. In all of your brokenness, come to God, ask for wisdom and help. Have the humility to just say, I don't have this figured out. Okay, so suffering matures us, suffering humbles us. Thirdly, suffering exalts us. Suffering not only humbles us, it also exalts us. Now look at verses 9 through 11. James says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now you have to understand the context that James is writing into. In that context, there was almost no middle class. Okay, like a lot of countries today, the United States being a, a massive exception, there was sort of the rich class and there was the extremely poor class. And so on a Sunday morning, there would be incredibly wealthy people and there would be incredibly poor people in the crowd. And the tendency for the poor was to feel inferior to the rich and the tendency of the rich was to feel superior to the poor. 
And James is teaching both rich and poor what to tell their own heart. Now, in, in one sense, poverty is sort of a, um, a general term for suffering, okay? And so, it's not just that some people are poor monetarily and others aren't, although that's the specific context that James is speaking to. Some people just feel beat up by life. And so all of us this morning either are having the tendency to feel like we're less worthy than other people in the room, or we feel like we're more worthy than other people in the room. And here's what James says. He says something kind of shocking. He says, if you're having the tendency to feel like you are inferior to those in the room, you should boast in your exaltation. What's he saying? This is what you need to preach to your heart if you are poor, if you are suffering. Literally poor, you feel marginalized, you feel on the outside looking in, you feel like you're not good enough. You need to remember that you're a child of God, that you are nobility in the kingdom of God, and that nothing you've done or nothing about your past or nothing about your present or nothing about your future can disqualify you from being a child of God because you have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus. And he says, conversely, for those of us who are rich, monetarily rich, we feel spiritually rich. We have a tendency to feel spiritually superior to other people, or on the world's terms, we feel superior to other people. He says, the gospel has some news for you too. Remember that you're a sinner. Remember that everything that you have is a gift from God. And remember specifically that you can't take any of it with you. That's what James is getting at here. He says, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. You cannot curry God's favor by being successful on worldly terms. And so a lot of us need to remember that we are just sinners saved by grace. Everyone enters the kingdom of God the same way, by the blood of Jesus, and none of us is superior to the other. Now, in studying this, I came across this really interesting article that was uh, published in Christianity Today not too long ago. And it says, uh, the title of the article was, Why the Enslaved Adopted the Religion of Their Masters and Transformed It. And, and here's what the writer of the article was sort of analyzing. He's analyzing this reality that enslaved people in America became Christians. He's just like, why in the world would they have done that? In other words, why did the poor take on the religion of the rich and transform it 
And, and here's his observation. He's talking about the Bible. He says, in these texts, and I thought of this text in particular. This might have been one of the texts. They found not just an otherworldly God offering spiritual blessings, but a here and now God who cared principally for the oppressed, acting historically and eschatologically to deliver the downtrodden from their abusers. They also found Jesus, a suffering Savior, whose life and struggles paralleled their own struggles. And so here's what he's saying. That even though enslaved people's masters were reading the Bible to them, there was something in the Bible that their masters couldn't see that the enslaved people could see. And that's that God gives nobility to those who are lowly and oppressed. God exalts the humble and humbles the proud. And so we would all do well to humble ourselves before God, to identify ourselves with the poor, with the oppressed, with the marginalized, so that we will be exalted. So God exalts us as we humble ourselves. Okay, a fourth thing about suffering is that suffering exposes us. Exposes us as sinners. Verses 12 through 15 says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has con is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Okay, so here, here's the interesting point that James is making here. He's saying, in the midst of trials, there's going to be a temptation for all of us to view our suffering as a punishment. And he said, I don't want you to think of your suffering, the various trials that you're going through, as a punishment from God. I want you to think of your trials as a test. God is testing you, not so that you'll fail, but so that you will grow and mature as a follower of Christ. So we've got to see that our trials are a test. And if we see them as a test that God wants us to pass, then we're going to think about our sin in a certain way. Because it is our tendency when trials are beating us up and sin is coming out of our life, it's our tendency to blame God for that. If you had not put this really difficult trial in my life, then I wouldn't be sinning in this way. So it's your fault, God. This is exactly what happens in the Garden of Eden. 
It's like, you put this woman with me, you put this man with me, you put this snake in the garden, it's your fault, God. But James says, no, 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 don't think that way. God is not tempted by evil, and he doesn't tempt anyone. Okay, so whose fault is it when instead of looking at the test of trials in our lives, we charge ahead and pass the test. Instead of that, we run to sin. Whose fault is that? He says, blame yourself. Take responsibility. So, so look how he describes how sin takes hold in our life. He says, when you're tempted, that is from yourself or from someone around you, or from Satan himself, when you get tempted, what happens when you sin is that temptation aligns with your desires. So you're lured and enticed by your own desire. Temptation, you're like, I want that. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. So where does sin come from? Sin comes from our desires. And our desires are crooked and corrupted. Our feelings and desires cannot be trusted. So what he's calling for again is for us to stop putting the blame on God, to start putting the blame on ourselves, and to see that we are rotten to the core. Okay, I've used this illustration before, but it's been a really helpful way for me to think about it. Sometimes for all of us, confessing sin can be a really difficult thing. Like we're in small group, we're supposed to be honest with each other and authentic, and we have trouble confessing our sin. But what James is saying is that we can expect that when we examine our desires, that there is going to be sin inside of us and that trials are going to expose that sin. So, so here's what confession, let me frame this in for you a little bit, is like imagine that you're um, eating dinner, you got a big burger on your plate and you want to put some ketchup on that burger, okay? So you get out the ketchup bottle and you start you know, you turn it upside down. It's one of those glass ketchup bottles, right? And you guys know the trick on like a Heinz 57 ketchup bottle? You got to hit the 57 to get the ketchup to come out. That's one of the best things I ever learned in my life, okay? Just hit the 57, the ketchup comes out. But imagine that you hit the 57, the ketchup starts flowing out of the ketchup bottle, and you're just like, what is going on here? Who played this trick on me? Ketchup is coming out of the ketchup bottle. This is ridiculous. Guys, when we are exposed by our trials and we're like, sin is coming out of the sinner. What is going on? This is crazy. It's like the, the trials start hitting us and, and we feel so exposed by that 
And it's only because of our pride. Guys, what if confession of sin became so normal in this family that we were just like, yep, ketchup came out of the ketchup bottle. Like, we just humbled ourselves to this point where we can just talk about our weaknesses and struggles that way. Now, I think we're taking a lot of steps in this direction. Like, I think in our connection groups, I think this is happening. And so I'm not saying, let's make something happen that's not happening. I'm saying, let's do that more and more and more. Because what stunts our growth is not the reality of our sin. It's when we try to cover it up. It's when we start blaming God for what is clearly coming from us, not from him. And so can all of us just say, my desires are corrupt. The reason that I sinned in that way is because I wanted to. The reason I sinned that way is because I'm messed up. So instead of saying, God tempted me, start saying, I tempted me. I fooled myself again. I deceived myself again. Join God in exposing your sin so that you can come to the Savior and receive his grace. Okay, so suffering exposes us. And the last thing we see in the text is that suffering enlightens us. Okay, verses 16 through 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Okay, why does James start this section by saying, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers? Okay, so what could we be thinking at this point in our study of James that would cause us to be deceived? Here's what I think is in James' mind. I think we can be deceived in the midst of suffering into thinking that we're getting the short end of the stick. We can be deceived into thinking that God is not a God who is giving us what's best for us, but that God is holding out on us and selling us short. And James is saying, listen, don't be deceived into thinking that Christianity is about God coddling you or God just being the big comforter in the sky. God does comfort us, but he also has a mission for us that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus. So don't be self-pitying. Don't get into this woe is me, my life so hard, version of Christianity and get everybody to join the pity party with you. Instead, understand this. Here's a great life perspective. Every good gift and every perfect gift is 
from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So instead of being deceived, understand that your life is a good gift from God. Your real life. Not the life that you dream about having one day. Not when you make a certain, certain amount of money. Not when your relationship status changes. Not when your boss isn't so hard on you. Not when you don't experience deep and painful loss. Not when you're not just slugging through every single day of your life. No, the very life that you have is a gift from God. It has come down to you from the Father of lights, and there's no variation or shadow due to change in him. In other words, there is no evil intent on God's part. There is no darkness in his soul. He is not trying to get back at you for anything that you did in the past. His motives in giving you the suffering, messed up, super hard life that he's given you, all of his motivation in that is good. He has nothing but good planned for you, even in the midst of your suffering. And he says, here's the evidence of that for you as a Christian. Verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now think about this believer in Jesus. Here's the evidence that God is working everything in your life for your good. You're saved. You're saved. And that was not, James is saying, primarily a choice that you made at church camp or at the bedside with your parents or on the college campus or at your workplace or at a church service. It's not primary, primarily a choice that you made. It was something that God brought forth in your life by his word of truth. So your new birth into this Christianity thing is a miracle from above. It's something that God did in your life. And if God did that in your life, then don't you dare for a second think that he has forsaken you. Don't think that he's holding out on you. Now, here's what we're like. Imagine that it's Christmas morning and you've asked your parents for an Xbox. And all you want is an Xbox. I just want an Xbox. My parents are only good if they give me an Xbox. And imagine you open up the present and you think maybe it's an Xbox. And instead of an Xbox, it's a violin. A violin? Your parents are like, well, you could play the Xbox or you could play the violin. Okay, but your parents see in you that you could be an incredible violinist. And so you've got a choice. You can either be mad, I just wanted to play the X Xbox. Xbox would numb out your brain and take away brain cells and make you, 
you know, just a lazy person who ends up living in your parents' basement. That's a judgment. Sorry. If you feel judged by that, we can talk later. But you could be part of the London Philharmonic Orchestra if you practice the violin. And your parents see that kind of potential in you. And so that's why they gave you the violin. And so what you're supposed to do in that scenario is not begrudge your parents' generosity. You're supposed to start practicing the violin every single day. God loves you too much to give you an easy life that rots out your brain cells. He loves you enough to give you a hard life that will glorify and honor him. And he wants you to submit to it. Which leads us to the ultimate purpose of trials. I, I love coming across this quote in one of the commentaries that I read by a guy named Dan Doriani. He says, this is kind of the ultimate purpose of trials, according to James. Trials expose our sin and our inability to reform ourselves. They reveal our need of a savior. What's he saying? If we didn't experience trials in our lives, we would never think we need Jesus. And Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so the grace in our trials is that it keeps us aware that we are dependent, that we need him. And how quickly do we run away when there aren't trials in our lives? And so here's kind of the final application, it's to say to God about our real lives, our real trials, thank you for sending these trials into my life to keep me close to you. Let's pray. God, in a, in a crowd this size, between people watching at home and people in the room. There's people going through some real trials. And so even in talking about suffering, it, it feels like a hard pill to swallow. And there's real and raw emotions in all that. But God, we know that there's no lasting joy in using our trials as an opportunity to be angry at you, but that there's real joy in submitting ourselves to you. And so as hard as it is, God, we say thank you. Thank you for the hardest things in our life. And we're able to say that because we believe that you give to us generously and without reproach. We take you at your word. Would you transform us into the image of Jesus? That is our greatest desire. It's in his name we pray. Amen.